You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, good morning to you guys. Good morning, Redeemer family. If you're a visitor, good morning to you. If you guys would uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. As Robert just read, that's where we'll be uh, really camping out today. My name's Rick Bowers. I serve as one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and it's really a joy to get to walk through this passage with you today. Um, The reason is that we're in the middle of a passage that's really all about victory. And each one of us, I think we really love stories of victory. They're stories that we uh, love to hear. They're stories that we love to engage where somebody wins, right? Maybe victory stories come to most of us through uh, maybe books that we read. Maybe you encounter victory stories that way. Maybe they come through a screen. Maybe you watch a show or you watch a movie and there's a victory story, a story where someone wins. Maybe you watch a victory play out often on a sports field. You can see victory happen there. Um, I'm a Texas A&M graduate, so I don't see victory happen there much. But it is wired into each of us to desire stories of victory. It's really wired into our core, into who we are. And most of the time in our lives, what's true is that we encounter stories of victory from a distance. Victory is something that happens to somebody else. It happens over there. It happens to that, that person, that guy, that girl, but it doesn't often happen to me. What happens to me instead is struggle, defeat, failure, despair, you name it, but not victory. Day in, day out, victory is not something that many of us are used to or that many of us sort of live in our daily rhythms. But here's the thing. If the text that Robert just read is true, and it is, If that text is true, then nobody is more victorious than those who place their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I really hope that we see that this morning. That's my hope for our time in this text this morning. Paul's writing this text to a young Corinthian church to help them get right in their understanding about the victory that's theirs. There's been some confusion around it. The church in general has begun to leave behind the ways of Jesus that Paul taught them, and they've begun to engage more and more in the ways of the world around them. And it's in this very letter that Paul works to renovate their hearts and minds back towards the way of Jesus, back towards the gospel truths that he taught them in the first place. And here at the end of the letter, he's addressing some confusion about the resurrection of Jesus, and he's pointing them towards their true hope. Everything that they're facing, all the ways in which they failed, all the sin that they're battling, pale in comparison with one reality, that the minute Jesus Christ walked out of the grave, he secured victory for the Corinthian church. And here's the thing. This isn't just a victory story at a distance. If your faith is in Jesus Christ this morning, it's also your victory story. And it will change absolutely everything in our lives. We're going to see that. The truth that Jesus Christ is our assurance of victory will transform us from the inside out. Join me in prayer, and then we'll step into our text this morning. 
Father, the psalmist wrote that um, we said it this morning, you're our light and our salvation, who shall we fear? You're the stronghold of our life, of who shall we be afraid? I ask this morning that you help us see that you are our stronghold, our only stronghold. Jesus, I ask that you help us see that you've made that reality possible to us. You've given us access to that truth through your death, through your, your resurrection. Help us see that. And Holy Spirit, I ask that um, this morning you would convict us where we need conviction. Draw us to repentance. If our faith and trust has never been placed in you, I ask this morning that you would guide us to that. If we need encouragement this morning, if we have fear, I ask that you would be our encourager, our comforter, our guide. And I ask that you would make Jesus all the more real to us as we walk through your word this morning. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Well, as we come into this text today, if you weren't here last week, I just want to encourage you to go back and listen to Jordan's sermon last week because what we're talking about today is a little bit of a part two of what we talked about last week. We're staying in chapter 15. It's all about the resurrection. So it'd be really great for you to go back and hear part one of what we're gonna talk about today. We're coming into verse 50, which is where we start our text today, after Paul has given a long explanation on the resurrection, on that specific moment when Jesus Christ arrives again and those who have died will be raised. Remember, Jesus came the first time born in a manger, died, resurrected, ascended to heaven. We live in the in-between, the already, not yet. Jesus will come again. And that is the moment Paul's talking about right now. Paul told us previously, right before this, this uh, passage today, that when the dead in Christ rise, they'll be given a resurrection body just like Jesus had. They'll be given flesh. They'll be given blood. They'll be hungry. They'll be thirsty. And you will. Did you know that? You will be given a resurrection body. Um, just so you know, I really hate to burst your bubble, but if you're like me and you grew up on Warner Brothers cartoons and Disney cartoons and you got your idea of the afterlife by watching those cartoons, it's time to unlearn that. Um, you're not going to become an angel when you die. That's just simply not going to happen. Uh, humans are humans. Angels are angels. Uh, Humans don't become angels. Angels aren't former humans. When we die, when a Christian draws their final breath, they are immediately in the presence of the Lord. When a non-believer draws their final breath, they are separated from the presence of the Lord. And then at a future date, a date that we can't figure out, by the way, no charts, no graphs, no, Jesus, no, this is happening, so Jesus is coming on March 25th. None of that. God's very clear in Scripture. We can't figure it out. Christ will return, and the dead will be raised. Those who believe in Christ, raised to eternal life with God. Those who do not, raised to eternal punishment and separation from him. That is what Paul has been talking about and explaining to us. And then we step in at verse 50. Paul's still talking about the resurrection. Let's see how he continues. Look at verse 50 with me. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. 
Paul has more to say about the resurrection, but this time it's not about what happens if you've died. It's about what happens if you have faith in Jesus and if you're alive when Jesus arrives. Paul says, listen up, brothers and sisters. This mortal body cannot exist when the kingdom of God is given to us in full. If you were here, if you were with us when we preached through the gospel of Mark, you heard a lot about the first advent, the first coming of Jesus Christ. And we talked a lot about what was actually happening, uh, what was cosmically occurring when God became flesh in Jesus and walked around our world. And that is that in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God was breaking into our world. The kingdom of heaven was beginning its crash course into humanity. And what we see in the Gospels, that's what Jesus means when he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That he's saying, the kingdom of God is arriving in me. It's beginning to erupt into this world. With miracles and healings and raising people from the dead, Jesus pulls back the curtain and he gives us a glimpse into what the kingdom of heaven is actually going to be like. But Paul says here, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So he's saying, okay, listen up. Jesus began the movement of the kingdom into our world during his first advent, but when he comes the second time, he's no longer the suffering servant. He's returning as the reigning king, and it will not be a slow crashing of his kingdom into this one. Paul's saying when it's time for that moment, when it's time for us to inherit the kingdom of God in full, it will be so glorious, so spectacular, so intense, so holy that these old bag of bones aren't gonna be able to hold up. It's one thing if you're six feet under when it happens and there's nothing left but dust. It's another if you're standing in the grocery aisle at HEB getting your bag of kale chips from the organic aisle. Your body's not gonna be able to handle what's happening. This decaying body won't be able to handle what is coming when Jesus appears and hands you, Christian, the kingdom of God in full. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. When Jesus arrives, transformed hearts make way for transformed flesh. Do you see that? Because we're about to inherit the kingdom of the king. We're not inheriting just land or just riches or just eternal life. Jesus is bringing the kingdom of heaven with him to earth. A transformation that begins with us and then the rest of creation Follows, And for those of us who might still be standing vertically when it happens, these perishable and pudgy bodies aren't going to be able to withstand it. The perishable cannot inherit the imperishable, Paul says. When Jesus arrives, we're going to experience the full onrush of the kingdom of God. Continue with me in verse 51. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. Paul says, we're not all going to have died when Christ arrives. Some of us will still be alive. We'll be cutting the yard, doing the laundry, watching the Rangers win the World Series. Some of us will still be here waiting for him, but it doesn't matter. Dead or alive, we're going to be changed. Okay, Paul, 
we're going to be changed, but what about this trumpet blast? Are we going to be changed before the trumpet blast or after the trumpet blast? Are we going to be changed during the trumpet blast? I don't think that we have to get goosebumps every time our neighbor's kid practices his trumpet, but Paul wants us to see that this particular moment of Christ's arrival and of our changing is a very specific moment in the timeline of eternity because here's why. Here's what's happening. Jesus is arriving. We're being changed. And God is declaring victory. A trumpet sound is something we see often throughout the Old Testament, really in important moments in the life of God's people. In Isaiah 27, 13, a trumpet was blown so that those who were lost and cast out can actually return and come worship the Lord. In Joel 2, 1, a trumpet is blown to signal that the day of the Lord is coming. Trumpets were often blown to signal victory. So when Paul talks about a trumpet blast, he wants us to see the importance, the significance of this moment in time. I love the way one scholar puts it. He puts it this way. He says, the trumpet signals the passing of this present moment of reality. It's really good, right? This present moment of reality passes and a new one begins. In a moment, as quickly as you can snap your fingers, Jesus brings the fullness of the kingdom, and dead or alive, we're changed. There's no separation here of resurrection and transformation. They're two parts of the same event. When we think back to the gospel accounts of when Jesus was here on earth, some of us may say that the, the most impressive or the most interesting things Jesus did was raise people back from the dead, right? He did that three times in the gospel accounts, if you don't count himself. He raised three people from the dead. Those were resurrection moments without transformation. What I mean is those people were raised back from the dead, and they would have to go on with their lives and eventually die again. It's kind of weird, right? I mean... Dying twice, that almost feels like bad luck, except there's no such thing as luck, and God himself is the one who raised you from the dead. These people weren't given new bodies. They were simply raised from being physically dead back to being physically alive, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the fact that this moment brings both resurrection and transformation. Okay. Can we be honest that some of us in here find this really hard to believe. Really hard to believe. The, the science would tell us, facts would tell us that it takes the human body 100 years on average to decompose. So what that means is in your coffin after 100 years, all that's probably gonna be left are teeth and the nylon band from your underwear. That's pretty gross, but it's true. So Paul, what's gonna happen if a person's been dead 200 years? Or if a person's been dead 500 years, or what about the saints of old, Paul? How are they actually going to be resurrected? How is that actually going to happen? And more importantly, Paul, what if I'm not dead? What if I'm alive, like Paul's talking about here? What if I'm alive, and I'm in line at Round Rock Donuts, and I just ordered my donuts, and I'm holding my... What happens to my clothes, Paul? Do they just fall off? What, what about my bones and my skin? And more importantly, the hot, fresh box of yeast. What happens to that right in front of me, Paul? What happens? We always like to know particulars. We always like to know details. We're so concerned often with how. 
And it's been really impressive how Paul tries to address that throughout this entire chapter. But here's the thing. The primary concern of your Bible are not the particulars. The primary concern of your Bible are the promises. It's not here to answer your how, but it's here to show you who. Because how doesn't change your heart. It just makes you hungry for what and facts and proof and signs. But who? Who will wrap your heart up in deep truths that nothing can undo? Who is this God that's arriving? Who is he? It's his character. It's his nature. What's he like? We come to the scriptures often asking how, but we should be reading for who. You can look at the the past four verses that we've already read this morning. You can't tell too much of how you're going to be changed, but you can tell a lot about the God who makes the change happen. He has power, right, to transform the physical realities of our world in the blink of an eye. He's got compassion to pull us out of these failing and fragile and broken Bodies. He's got wisdom to know how to do all of this. And you can see something else as well. You can see that his arrival brings change. This is a God who changes things. This is a God who transforms people, who makes the perishable imperishable, who makes the mortal immortal, who takes things that are broken and failing and destroyed and restores them, who isn't held up by the bounds of time or sickness or injury or disease or pain or sin or failure. He's a God who takes things that are dead and dying and he brings them back to life. Isn't that what Jesus Christ has already done with our souls? Isn't that why we run to him in our brokenness? Isn't that why we run to him in our failure and we throw ourselves at his feet for rescue because he is the great restorer, the great healer. He is the one who washes us clean of our sin. This is a God who transforms you and who transforms me and he does it from the inside out. And if you're in here this morning and you don't know this God, run to him. Repent and believe he will also transform you. I'd love to share a quote with you from Keith Matheson. In an an article titled Paradise Restored, he puts our final transformation, he puts our ultimate hope this way. The ultimate future of the believer is the resurrection of the body at the second coming of Jesus Christ. On that glorious day, The soul and the raised and transformed body of the believer will be one again as God originally created them to be. Not only will our bodies and souls be freed from the remnants of sin, the heavens and earth will be renewed and freed from the curse of sin as well. This new earth in which righteousness dwells will be our home. It's faith in Jesus Christ that transforms our souls. And it's faith in Jesus Christ that will ultimately lead to transformation of our bodies and eternity with God. Because when Jesus arrives, when he shows up, it changes everything. Let's keep going. Verse 54 with me. Paul says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written. 
death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? So here we go. Remember a few, moments, a few moments ago I said that Paul wants us to see that this is a significant moment in the timeline of eternity. Jesus arrives, we are changed, and God declares victory. Here's the victory moment. When we're changed, then death is swallowed up in victory, and then Paul mocks death. Death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? I don't have time to unpack that today, but for homework... Go home and look at those Old Testament references. It's really cool how Paul uses them here in this text. But listen in closely with me for a minute. Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. Is Paul saying that death shouldn't affect us? Is that, is that, is that what Paul's saying here, that, that death shouldn't hurt? That we shouldn't grieve, that we shouldn't mourn, that we shouldn't weep over loss? that our hearts shouldn't be broken, that our lives shouldn't feel like they're ruined. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what he's saying at all. In our fallen state today, still uh, dealing with the results of sin, still alive in these decaying bodies, disease, loss, the sting of death, it has affected everyone in here and it will affect everyone in here. Um, I love my grandpa. He wasn't my biological grandfather. My biological grandfather passed away when my mom was 12. He was actually a preacher. But my grandma remarried, and the man that I knew as my grandpa uh, was a wonderful, fantastic man. He was a war hero. He fought in World War II. He drove a tank destroyer. He uh, received a Purple Heart. He loved my grandma with all of his heart. He loved uh, her kids. He loved us grandkids as well. I grew up around my grandpa learning to do all kinds of things that I still love to do today. Just being outside a lot, running around in the woods, um, riding bikes, uh, playing outside. I still love all that stuff today. And I learned to do a lot of that stuff and did a lot of that stuff growing up around my grandpa. Uh, I remember Growing up with him, hand-loading shotgun shells in his garage, because that's what you do when you grow up in the country. I remember shucking corn and peas. I remember picking blackberries in big buckets on hot summer days. Uh, I remember whittling sticks, taking his pocket knife and whittling sticks. I have no idea why a, a little boy needs so many sharp sticks, but apparently I needed a lot of them. Maybe you can relate to that. I remember all these things about my grandpa. And I also remember when I was 12 years old, my grandpa was suffering a massive heart attack. And my mom and I on our knees next to his body, performing CPR, trying to bring life back into his lifeless body. And it didn't work. Paul says, death, where's your sting? It's right there. It's in a man that I love laying on the ground with no more life in his body, and it stings. Church family, where do you still feel the sting of death? Where have you grieved? Where have you suffered loss that still hangs on, that has led you to ruin, that has led you to feel despair, that has led you to feel broken and empty? 
The scriptures never, ever, ever downplay the sting of death. Even Jesus Christ wept at the death of his friend. Shortest verse in scripture, Jesus wept. How much is packed into that verse? But a day is coming when tears of grief will be wiped away. We can grieve, church, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope because a victory has been won. The gospel transforms our grief from grieving with despair to grieving with hope. We can't bring dead bodies back to life, but the God who transforms people and changes things can and he will. When Jesus arrives, the victory that began when he walked out of the grave is finally complete, and God will put an end to death forever. And not just an end to death, but to the, an end to all the effects of death as well, and decay, the grief that you feel over loss that still lingers in your heart, the pain you feel in your body day after day, the failing of your physical body as you reach old age, the infirmity of lungs that don't stay clear and limbs that don't move as they should, the disease that immobilizes you and has ruined every aspect of your life and changed all your hopes and all your dreams with every day that passes. Those things are brought closer and closer to defeat and you, Christian, who are suffering are brought closer and closer to victory. Yes, it hurts. Yes, your life has never been the same. Yes, you walk a little more slowly. Yes, breathing is more difficult. Yes, right now in our current state, the effects of decay and sin on our physical bodies, we still feel them. We still encounter them. We still endure them. But the victory has already begun. Death has no power over us. It is on its way to defeat. It will be swallowed up in victory by the Lion of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ, church family. Let's look at verse 56. Paul says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. We weren't created to die. That's why we fear it. It's unnatural. It's not part of God's original design for us. But it is inevitable. One day, unless Jesus comes first, you and I will die. Our physical bodies will in some way fail us. They will give out completely. There's a saying, we all know it, only two things are sure in life, death and taxes, that's right. In Texas, we can say three, death, taxes, and road construction, right? <laughs> in the sin of Adam... Death has entered the picture for all of us. And, and our sin, our sin leads to death. The end result of our rebellion, our sin against God is pain, is decay, is death. Death is our last great enemy. Paul says it, the sting of sin. But God gives us his good rules to show us how to be alive, how we can live without sin, but we can't even keep those rules. In fact, even knowing that they're there stirs sin up in us more and more to rebel against them. We behave like toddlers. Maybe not your toddler, but maybe everybody else's toddler. What, what, is, what does your toddler do? And you say, hey, Johnny, don't touch that hot pan. Well, they do, right? 
That's often what happens, right? Sin uses God's law to stir up more sinfulness in us. That's what Paul's communicating to us. As the law casts light on a righteous way to live without sin, it's also casting light on the fact that we can't live that way. We sin too much. We love sin too much. We can't do it unless someone changes our hearts, unless someone wins a victory for us over sin and over death. Who will do that? Look at verse 57. Paul tells us, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot have victory over death, but Christ can, and he did when he walked out of the grave. And when your faith rests in Jesus, God takes the victory that Christ won over sin and death, and he places it in your hands. And when Jesus arrives again, death is, is dealt its final blow, and we fully experience that victory. That is the victory of God over sin and death. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us of that victory that's still to come for us. Look at our final verse this morning as we close. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul says, look back at everything you just heard from me, everything I just talked to you about, about the resurrection. <clears throat> and a lot of this has to do with what Jordan mentioned last week when he said, uh, let your future hope give shape to your present living. Paul's saying, because this victory of death is true and it's yours and it's coming, here's how you live today. He says, you live steadfast and immovable, a life that's resolute in your faith, loyal and faithful to King Jesus, turning from sin, repenting when you fail, and looking to the victory that's to come. Steadfast and immovable when the effects of sin slam into your life, when you are mistreated, abandoned, betrayed, when somebody else's sin turns your life into ruin, follow Jesus, look to the victory that's to come. Steadfast and immovable when the effects of death come, when loved ones die, when disease changes your life, when your physical body begins to fail you, turn your eyes to the victory that's to come. And when you can't, when it's all too much, look to the one who's been steadfast and immovable for you and has secured your victory already and rest in him. And then Paul says, always abound in the work of the Lord and know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Two final things we can't miss here before we go. Paul first says, live on mission, the work of the Lord. You've been given this wonderful victory so that you can freely give and sacrifice and serve and so that you can tell others so that they can have victory too. Classmates, neighbors, coworkers, always abound in the work of the Lord. And here's the other truth. Whatever you're doing today will bear some kind of fruit into eternity. That's why we do all things as unto the Lord. Know in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We talk a lot about how a Christian shouldn't be self-centered in their identity. 
right? It's kind of like basic Christian ethics. We shouldn't center ourselves uh, on us, on me. But Christians also shouldn't live time-centered. The good old days, this present moment. Not only is this place not our home, this present moment is not our home. We always hold this world and this time loosely. We're always anticipating the arrival of Jesus. The, the moment will be changed. The moment that God declares victory. And because Jesus is bringing change here, he's not pulling us off to some other place and, and blowing this place to bits. He's bringing change here. And because he is, our work has eternal significance. What you do today matters in eternity. How excellently you work, how you care for this world, how you work when nobody's looking, how you keep up your home, interact with creation, how you plug numbers into a spreadsheet, how you sweep the floor, how you do your schoolwork, how you play sports, how you change diapers, how you put out fires, how you sell widgets, how you find veins for an IV, how you enter code, how you teach children has eternal significance in the new creation. Not a second of it will be in vain. It will all be work that is redeemed into the new kingdom. How will it be redeemed? I don't know how it will be redeemed. But scripture says it will. And I know a God who redeems things. The arrival of Jesus changes absolutely everything in our lives. Everything about tomorrow and absolutely everything about today. Pray with me, church family. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we just confess that sometimes the waiting is hard. Sometimes the waiting is painful. Sometimes the waiting is a lot to endure. And I just ask that for those of us in here this morning that need encouragement and comfort in this present moment or maybe in moments to come, that you remind us that you're faithful to do that. Let your, you send your spirit to do that in our hearts and our minds to comfort us and remind us that a victory's been won for us. Lead us to you. Draw our hearts in closer to you. We love you. We trust you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.